In this episode, I'm once again joined by Daniel Ingram, meditation teacher and author of Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha. Daniel is best known for his controversial claim to arhatship, one of the highest levels of enlightenment in Buddhism. Less well known is Daniel's lifetime of practice in magic and the occult. In this interview, Daniel reveals his magical biography and comments on various systems including Goetia, Enochian, Kabbalah, Castaneda, Buddhist magic, and more. Daniel shares his encounters with demons, astral entities, mythical beings. He tells of entering into magical combat with angry magicians who had cursed him. Daniel also critiques the modern mindfulness movement for its suppression of information about the magical aspects of its own tradition, and gives advice on ethics and the accumulation of psychic power. So without further ado, Daniel Ingram. Daniel Ingram, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's delightful to be here as always. And you're best known for your book, Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, and for your claim to arhatship, the highest level of enlightenment in the Theravada school of Buddhism. Actually, Prateka Buddha and Buddha would be higher than that, but still, it's, it's definitely quite a claim as these sorts of things go. And definitely annoys some people, right? So it's controversial. And I'm, I uh, definitely, from some people's points of view, take some liberties with the definition of the term you can read all about those complexities in my book where I tried to do a, as fair a treatment as I can of both sides of the argument um, at mctb.org. Of course, you cover that also in quite some detail, including the controversy about your public claim in our first interview on this podcast. And you're also very well known for your revival of the traditional practice of the fire casino, a fascinating candle flame oriented meditation practice that you've written about extensively at firecasino.org. Something else that you've written and talked a lot about is your passion for magic, and not of the David Copperfield kind, right? but what Crowley defined as the science and art that provokes change in conformity with the will. In your 2012 essay, Some Thoughts on Magic, you provide a related definition. Consciousness plus intent produces magic. Anything that was produced by these two, even if present in the smallest way, is a magical act or product. You go on in that essay to make a distinction between conscious and unconscious magic. And you write, I would very much like to say that unconscious magical acts are likely less powerful or effective than conscious magical acts, but I unfortunately do not believe this to be true, which is one way of viewing the primary problem facing the world today. And you wrote that in 2012, where it's a very different world in 2012. <laughs> But to set the frame somewhat for what will follow, perhaps we could cover some basic ground. Could you say a little something about this distinction between conscious and unconscious magic and in what way this contributes to the world situation? Right. So if uh, you take the first premise that any time there's consciousness and intent, which usually is fueled by some need, desire, emotion, some sort of emotive spark or passion or quality that um, is moving in some direction, then if you're willing to buy this sort of theory, then that creates its own sort of magical force, which then goes into the great mix of all the magical forces coming from all the magical intentions. And you know, the sort of sense that you can feel an emotion in a room when you walk into it, that you can, um, you know, sort of determine how your life goes in some way by your attitude. These, 
to some degree sort of reflect something of this idea, if in relatively coarse pop cultural form, but also one a lot of people can relate to. And so um, if you imagine a world in which it is true that our inner experience has causal effects on the rest of the world, that all of our thoughts somehow are impacting our mood, our body, our emotions, our, the way we speak, the way we act, our biochemistry, our immune system, and may then in some magical way, if you're willing to go there, have effects that are a little bit more broad than that. So there's a pretty extensive literature on the degree to which non-localized effects that cannot currently be explained with standard materialistic explanations may occur. So if you read books like Real Magic or The Power of Eight by Lynn McTaggart or Rupert Sheldrake, Sheldrake's work or the work of Charles Tart, you will find that there's this whole world, if you already don't know this, of research on the fact that somehow our inner experience and thoughts and the things we can perceive and feel and know and do seems to have some impact on the external world that, again, is hard to explain from a just Newtonian physics point of view. So if you take that all as true, then consider every single being, every single consciousness entity embodied, and then, or otherwise, if you're willing to go to the realm of, say, spirits, et cetera, and whatever those are, or semi or you know, non-material beings, um, and then you consider all of those as forces that are somehow impacting this reality, this universe, assuming there is one coherent, you know, collective universe that we're all a part of, another ontological assumption that may or may not be useful. And so uh, then when you think about all that and you think about the number of people that are doing this without training, without really a comprehension of the possible causality, without really an ethical grounding and maybe their inner landscape is not just only relevant to them, but to the people around them, certainly, and to the rest of the world, and then considering the ethical lens through which you have to consider how one might then relate to that experience, and if there is power there and capability, is one using that skillfully? Is And what are the consequences of having emotions and feelings and wants and needs? And expressing those in through say anger or greed or cruelty even if it's just thoughts in one's own mind what effect does that actually have on the world and one has to be careful with this because um the sort of unskillful thing you can then do is say oh i had a cruel thought i'm a terrible musician sorry magician or a terrible person right you know that's certainly one way to sort of beat yourself up then about your um, or, you know, all of our complicated inner lives, right? So if we examine our thought streams, honestly, we would all notice that we have plenty of thoughts we often might not um, say in polite company or consider to be our best. And if one imagines that all of those might have some sort of magical force, that's simultaneously utterly terrifying, right? From a certain, you know, magical bleed-through spillover friendly fire kind of point of view, but also perhaps an opportunity to then start taking a look at our inner lives. What are the energies there? What are the realistic drives? What are our primal forces? What are our 
you know, sides that try to moderate those from a sort of a id super ego, ego in the middle, trying to figure out how to balance all this point of view, very Freudian at this point, and say, okay, how can we work with this situation? What's the best thing to do with this? Where do our ideals meet our primal drives and the realities of the situations we find ourselves in and the cultures? And how can we, through learning and observation, do something better than what we're currently doing? So at its best, it's sort of an invitation to take your inner world seriously, hopefully not in a way that's full of guilt or remorse or you know fear, but in a way that um, appreciates the potential of how to work with that and then does that. Yeah, and it seems like different magical and religious systems, if we if we take that as the as the, as our frame somewhat for this conversation, it seems like different magical traditions and religious systems have all kinds of ways of working with this friendly fire aspect, direct mind training to uh, address the thoughts themselves and uh, make them better and so on, make the thoughts uh, better, the content, improve the content, but also practices um, such as confessional practices or purification practices, things like that yeah. seem to have a kind of um, recognize the uh, difficulty at the very least of having completely pure thoughts and taking some mitigating or diluting effect at the end of the day or whenever one does a sort of purification practice. Yeah, well, confessional practices are super interesting, right? So not only is that suddenly turning a process that might be sort of, you know, conscious or suppressed conscious or sort of subconscious into something that you've brought to the level where you can articulate it to somebody else, but you're expressly doing that. And from what my point of view would be a magical context with the goal of some sort of healing or catharsis or release or feedback or penance, depending on the tradition you are coming from and how it relates to these sorts of things, as well as bringing in hopefully the skillful magical energies at these sorts of rituals best of somebody else who might be able to help. So that's turning, you know, much less conscious magic into not only conscious magic, but then collective magic, where you're, you're bringing in the resources of some aspect of your community, your tradition, external things to bear, and to transform that in some kind of way, and uh, to find some ease and peace in relationship to it, to bring more light to it, you might say. I'm curious on your thoughts on this. It seems like a pivot, a key point of that confessional um, maneuver is some kind of penance uh, or other, or in in for instance, there, uh, there. I think I'm thinking, for instance, of the of the merit building uh, practices of Buddhism or the uh, penance practices of Catholicism, where the priest will give the confessor a certain number of prayers to do on typically on their rosary, ten Hail Marys, and so on and so forth. Uh, and then in the um, more Protestant uh, side of things, it seems like celebration or about at the already doneness, uh, the meta already doneness of one's purification can act as a similar seal or cap to that that whole process you've just described. Well, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and. So yeah, the, the purification practices and the opportunity for those, and also the internal message you're sending to yourself, just the simple fact of doing your purification practices in some you know, subconscious or very conscious way saying, you know, maybe I have the you know, um, 
could be redeemed, forgiven, um, forgiven by society, forgiving yourself, uh, etc. And so, and that which obviously can be very helpful, as well as bringing in gratitude that you have an opportunity to express these things in a community that can support you, as well as just the the fact of normalization. So it's it's very much easier to be able to be conscious about things we're able to accept exist in ourselves, right? So if we have a notion, oh, I can't be a person who thinks this, or I can't be a person who feels that, I would never do that. Well, then if it happens, then there's a part of their brain that is likely to, you know, our brains like to push that down, react to that, not being able to bring it as fully into consciousness, and then hopefully moderated by things like medical cognition and skillful action and external support and um, you know uh, guide guidelines for living and codes of conduct and all of that sort of stuff and obviously active practices so just this simple fact of normalization which comes through telling it to someone and hopefully having them do that uh, can be very helpful just like the psychotherapeutic process from a certain point of view is very magical right it's because you then can go through something like this as well, hopefully with someone normalizing that what you're um, experiencing or talking about that is within the range of human experience, which then obviously helps with the metacognition and the lack of denial and shadow sides, which are obviously some of the scarier magical things to contemplate. That's very fascinating. I think um, another aspect I think of that confessional process and this is a bit of a two-way at the moment but i'm i can assure you i'm going to we're going to pivot into real questions towards you it seems one of the other aspects of that confessional practice you're talking about uh coming face to face with or acknowledging some of the so to say darker content of our character or personality or thoughts yeah and jung famously said and i may paraphrase here that which we fail to recognize in ourselves we will encounter in the world around us and there's all sorts of interpretations of that phrase but of course a superficially psychotherapeutic one would be in the in the means of projection certainly lack of recognition of one's own inner content seems to at the very least cloud one's vision in seeing clearly what's going on because one can't even see oneself clearly in that case so i wonder if you think you know some of the confessional practices are communal, but there are others. For instance, I think of the Vajrasattva practice, which is woven into almost every tantric sadhana. It has its own its own sort of practice uh, category, but usually in any tantric sadhana, one will find a Vajrasattva section, you know, um, which is a sort of conf a self confession in a way, or if you like, a confession to the Bodhisattva Vajrasattva. One of the two it depends how you see it, I suppose. Do you have any thoughts on uh, confession and I suppose facing the shadower, shadowier sides as a route to clear seeing, perhaps even insight. Oh, definitely. And it also it, within the Theravada tradition, you know, you, if I have done wrong to the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, you know, may these please forgive me. And so the monastic practices also explicitly have those built into them as part of their uh, ritual. And you find this across lots of traditions, obviously, it's an extremely common, valid, really important human need that, you know, when you can get into a safe space that hopefully will not be 
unduly punishing you for whatever you've thought or done, and instead really supporting you and helping you work with that in some transformative way that, you know, we all dream of that. We all dream of being heard, of being deeply understood. I mean, most art is something about people wanting to be understood in some way. You know, it's a um, podcast like this even, you know, the two of us wanting to, in some ways, be heard, accepted, understood, um, have us, you know, be acknowledged as somehow okay, is a very powerful human need. And so, and I think that in and of itself can be very healing and magically transformative. In addition to, as you say, with Jungian archetypes and shadow work, definitely help with all of that. Mm, that's very fascinating. So let's let's pivot a bit into your personal magical journey. You said that the magical view that most fits your approach is chaos magic, which you've described as a sort of one of one of its aspects is the ability to put on different hats and draw from different systems, different magical systems and traditions as seems useful to the practitioner. And so no doubt you've looked into all kinds of systems along the way. Could you give us your magical biography from your initial interests through the various systems you studied, perhaps chronologically, uh, to the present day? Sure. Well, where to start? Um, weirdly enough, the, the first thought that comes in terms of starting is the movie Fantasia. So when I was probably four, um, my parents took me to see, maybe I was five, somewhere in there, somewhere around four or five, I got to see Fantasia, which if for some reason you haven't seen this film, involves a lot of things, but one of the things it involves is the um, Sorcerer's Apprentice, and it's a, where Mickey Mouse um, gets some magic going wrong and has suddenly all this water um, filling out all over the place and being carried by buckets with brooms, and, and it becomes a big mess, and the sorcerer has to come in and, and clean it up, and, and um, so the apprentice wizard is chastised. And I was like, wow, magic, you know? And so this is the first thought I, of my memory of like going, wow, there's magic. And of course, as a kid, you, you go, well, of course there's magic, right? I mean, you just sort of believe this stuff. And, and you know, so there's, that's the first bit of my biography I can remember. And then I remember when I was about six or seven, my grandmother was talking to be to me about magic card tricks. And, I, and then I was like, well, what about real magic? And she was like, what do you mean real magic? I'm like, you know, wizards and stuff like spells. And, and she's like, oh no, we just do card tricks. And I was like, that's not a satisfying answer. So, and then, you know, obviously one cannot help be, but be influenced by all of the pop culture that comes after that, right? So of course, uh, you know, very influenced by like A Wizard of Earthsea, that series by Ursula K. Le Guin and uh, The Hobbit, obviously, and Lord of the Rings trilogy, Silmarillion, and then all the other endless magical shows and things, because this is a huge part of pop culture. So my initial educations in magic were all popular magic, which is actually, for those of you who don't know, its own magical tradition. So there are actually pop magical traditions where they actually do the spells that you find in popular magic. And that's sort of, from my point of view, almost like one of the things that chaos magic and its attitude helps facilitate, which is the potential that, 
you know, um, casting a spell from Harry Potter, for example, and using, uh, you know, a wand or one of those words might be a magical thing to do and valid magical practice as much as anything else that you would find in an old medieval grimoire or, you know, spell book or something from the Greek magical papyri or the Golden Dawn or, you know, some um, Thai ancient Buddhist, you know, magic or something or animist practice. And so, yeah, so my initial education was very pop. And then I ended up um, running into the first place I seriously started seeing talk about magic was then in Buddhist texts, where um, I was doing intensive Buddhist meditation retreats. And then when I ran into the books that talk about those sorts of things, the Vasudhimaga and the Vimudhimaga, and then some of the old texts like the Sutra, The Fruits of the Homeless Life, then I recognized, wait a second, these people were doing magic. And not only were they doing it, they tell you how to do it. They basically say, get your concentration super strong, go off in a quiet place, you know, enter into a state they would call the fourth jhana, come out and then resolve and do magic. And they were talking about all kinds of things, traveling out of body and touching the sun and moon and duplicating oneself and swimming through the earth like it was water and flying up in the sky and interacting with entities and reading people's minds and doing all this, all of these things. And I thought, why are none of my Buddhist teachers talking about this? Like, because this would seem to be super cool, right? I mean, this is in the books. It's in the old traditional books. And yeah, they mentioned mindfulness in this stuff, but why aren't they going there? When I started to ask some questions about this, I got some very uh, weird mix of strange answers. Um, but one of them uh, actually um, from Steve Armstrong, who I very briefly met at IMS, uh, when I talked to him about this, he said, well, you know, if you're interested in those things, you should just go do it. And I was like, wow, okay. That's not the answer I've generally been getting from people is like, oh, that's all illusion or, oh, we don't talk about that or, oh, that was just sort of a mythology from the old text, but mindfulness translate, but the rest doesn't. And so I was really excited then um, by that. And so I, I read more on these things and I started re recognizing that the way they did this was generally casino practice. And I, and I had had a few sort of minor magical experiences on cushions where strange things had happened. So I got the sense that there was might be a there there. And a lot of their maps really did seem to apply to my insight practices. So they predicted those pretty well. And I thought, well, okay, maybe the rest of it might be true. And then I ran into Honey Bunny. And Honey Bunny was the name of my sister's husband's sister's now ex-husband, so my ex-brother-in-law-in-law, and he was a Thelemic practitioner and also had read a lot of other texts and had pretty broad knowledge of a lot of things, but was very versed in chaos magic, the Golden Dawn, OTO, Thelema, Crowley, moderately versed in various sort of Wiccan witchcrafty traditions and general sort of Western neo-paganism. And he he and I realized we had a very hard time talking to each other. So he gave me a bunch of books and I gave him a bunch of books. Um, and we sort of went back and forth over maybe, you know, six months at least, just trying to get our terminology lined up. And in the process of that, I read things like, you know, book four and magic and theory and practice and magic without tears and moon child and, you know, 
various Crowleyan books and started looking at tarot and astrology, sort of astrology, like more seriously, like I knew about it through my mom, but had never really read much about it and started doing things like lesser banishing rituals of the pentagram and middle pillar ritual and trying to draw things in the air and finding that super frustrating. And I was also reading books like Practical Solitary Magic and um, like uh, Silver Raven Wolf and stuff like that. So like people are, you know, which is interesting stuff. And um, looking at some of the Llewellyn books, like, um, you know, Magician's Companion with all these lists and numbers and tables and correspondences and stuff like that. And so getting what I might call pretty standard um, neo-pagan Western education you know, going through Israel Regardi's The Golden Dawn and yeah, so that kind of stuff. Going back a little bit, looking at a little bit of the Blavatsky material um, and uh, Levi and um, those kinds of authors. And so, and then, and then I was very frustrated at when they described like visualizing and writing these things that I couldn't do it. And they said, you should be able to see the pentagrams. You should be able to you know, see the the columns of light. And I was like, well, I don't have the chops to do that. So I started going back to Buddhist tech and going, well, maybe Buddhist tech can tell me how to do this because they have explicitly, you know, the the white casino, the blue casino, the yellow casino, the red casino, you know, these um, practices where you use a color, usually of a disc or something, and you learn to visualize it. And then you learn eventually to see it everywhere. And so I started doing these practices and realizing that they allowed me to get these little sort of wispy trails of color off of my finger, you know, when I would, you know, draw my earth banishing pentagram or whatever. I could just sort of this little sm small kind of smear and space and things would get a little thicker. And I was like, hmm, I seem to be on the right sort of track here. So then things really kind of took off when I went to, um, I, I actually went up to IMS and I asked Joseph Goldstein, about the powers. And he was like, yep, don't know anything about the powers, but Christina Feldman does. And I was like, okay, cool. So I managed to spend two months at Gaia House there in the UK on work retreat in 1999 between my um, master's program in epidemiology, which was a PhD program. I just quit early and didn't do the dissertation and medical school. And I spent most of the time um, when I wasn't working in the garden or cooking in the kitchen or something like that, doing casino practices and then reading various books on Tantra and magic and what kind of stuff I could find on this in the Gaia House library, which they actually had a reasonable number of books that one way or another talked about these sorts of experiences and started having some results. So the first time I ever traveled out of body off the cushion was, you know, where I was in a seated posture, not lying down on the edge of sleep, was there at Gaia House. And the first time I ever managed to make my entire field of experience just be nothing but sort of brilliant white mist uh, was there. And so had some initial experiences that sort of gave me some proof of concept. And I had a few sort of semi-strange magical experience, it was very hard to tell what they were. So like um, when I was doing this practice, all of a sudden I found myself like as if I was could almost see it, but it was like listening on, in on the living room of these 
there was a television going and there were these women with British accents talking about the, the TV show, just having an ordinary conversation. And it seemed, this was not something that I would have come up with. And it seemed very much like something that I was listening into because I had no idea what they were going to say next. It didn't something like it didn't seem like something I was fabricating or like creating as a daydream or anything. It really seemed like I had suddenly tuned the radio to these people's living room of what they were talking about. And I was like, well, that was weird. And so based on some of these sort of first proof of concept things, I then started doing much more casino practice in daily life, taking this stuff more seriously, and then eventually ended up um, you know, reading some Dallas stuff on this and some other stuff, but ended up um, at Bhavana Society in 2001 on a 17 day retreat after, and after completing yet another insight cycle when I felt like I was in a good review place, which only took about 10 days or so, then I thought, okay, well, I've, I feel really good about insight practice. Let's turn to casino practice. And I started looking at the little lamp that was there in my kuti, which was the only source of light at night and um, then started just sort of saying, well, I'm gonna figure out how to do fire casino because I happen to have this candle. And then I just started figuring out how it happens. And with a lot of experimentation and just hours and hours and hours of practice, you can sort of reconstruct and revive these techniques. And then I started having more powerful magical experiences. And then I was like, okay, there's a there there. And not only is there a there there, but the there 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 occasionally seems sort of semi-controllable and particularly accessible if you get your concentration super strong and this fits with the old texts. Okay, um, if, you know, if it seemed like I was hooked before, now I was really hooked. Um, so that's sort of, uh, and then, you know, I ended up also somewhere in there, of course, Donald Michael Craig's Modern Magic and, a number of other books on uh, Wicca and witchcraft and um, books like Spellcaster, which is a really nice book and some stuff about runes and, you know, crystals and then getting into wands and all of that. And then um, somewhere in there, I found chaos magic and things like Liber Null and the Book of Results and Condensed Chaos and books like Advanced Magic for Beginners by Alan Chapman. And so that um, influence really opened me up to the just like, hey, I don't have to have somebody else's angel in my ritual or somebody else's words in my ritual if I don't like them. I can really just sort of feel very empowered and comfortable picking and choosing based on my own aesthetics. And even books such as The Slow Regard of Silent Things by Patrick Rothfuss, which is this sort of little novella in the middle of his unfinished King Killer um, saga, uh, you know, which begins um, with uh, the name of the wind and then continues with the wise man's fear and the doors of stone, which we've been waiting for for a decade or something. And um, but there's this little novella in there about um, Ari, and Ari is lives under underground, and she seems kind of moderately crazy and sort of damaged, but she's a very powerful practitioner in some ways and her aesthetics about like where a stone should go or where a little thing that she's found on the floor of her underground um, maze of tunnels she lives in should go. Something in the confidence of her aesthetics was very empowering for me, curiously enough. And just really being intuitive about um, working with colors and shapes and words and 
and just what one feels right with. So that was very helpful. That's fascinating. So this is really in tandem with your insight journey. Could you talk a little bit about the interactivity of of that side of your interest and your insight journey? Um, yeah, so the insight, because a lot of people sort of see magic and insight as diametrically opposed to each other. If you're coming from sort of a strict like Zen point of view, they would say this is all illusion or some of the more narrow and bandwidth Theravada traditions. You know, by the time you're into the Mahayana, usually they're more comfortable with this stuff, though it usually appears in forms that most people are not taking very magically seriously, right? Even though it's super magical, right? You're talking about beings and spells and energies and colors and moving energy around and this ray goes out from here and you're invoking this God form that will then become you. And it's like, it's like super friggin' magical tech. And yet even plenty of people who are doing these rituals are not really thinking of it as magic sometimes, which is kind of wild. I mean, there can be this weird split, but, you know, in particular, the sort of more, um, not puritanical is not the right word, but sort of narrow band Theravada um, would say these things are sort of an opposition. And I, for a number of years, when a sort of a, a vision or a magically experience would sort of start to arise, or I'd feel some like hint of intuition or something like that was happening, I would just tear it to shreds with Vipassana. And so I had a few years in there where I was pretty like, Vipassana first and and all the rest, like even like shamatha practices or jhanas, like didn't seem cool to me, right? I just want insight. I want to wake up as fast as possible. I'm not interested in any of that. It seems like a distraction. You know, only the degree of concentration that I really need to get my insight trip together is, you know, kind of bare minimum, very sort of Mahasi-esque influenced. But I also did a lot of sitting then with Bhante Gunaratana, who talks a lot about jhanas and insight and sort of putting these together and using them to support each other. And he would actually talk about powers. So that was one of the interesting things where I was like, hey, wait a second. Here's a traditional monastic guy who you know has very level-headed books like Mindfulness in Plain English, which I highly recommend. And he's talking about powers and he's he will talk about these things in his dharma talks and he had, he talked about attaining real deep jhanas and them being very healing and skillful and he even brief, briefly would sort of talk about casino practice a little bit and he actually even answered a few questions when i asked him about this on retreat one time which was very helpful and um and so as my insight um trip got better and as I thought, okay, I've got enough of a, a foothold on insight that I feel comfortable kind of branching out now. So um, by this point, I was what I thought of as second path, which is, you know, sort of a mid-grade uh, awakening attainment. And again, like people, obviously, if we didn't lose you with the the first, you know, declaration of our hot ship and you're still hanging on, then hopefully this isn't too challenging for you. But you know, I had I could cycle through insight stages. I could get repeat fruitions. I had seen some transformations of consciousness that seemed lasting and durable across stages. And I started to think, okay, like the cycles of insight are happening regardless. Some magical experiences even seem to happen within them as part of them. 
And then when I thought back and I thought, well, actually it was a witch shooting me with a her ray out of light out of her wand that caused my first A and P I'm certain of. And so like that, if that isn't magic, I don't know what is. And then before I knew it, I thought, well, actually these things can work together. They can support each other. And even certain insight stages can be explicitly very magical, particularly the arising and passing away in equanimity. Though there is a certain sort of weird dark magic as well to um, the dark night. So, and then as I had some of my magical experiences that convinced me, started to convince me that every single thought was in some ways a magical act. And I was seeing that in some of the stuff I was reading and the theory and practice of that were kind of coming together for me. I then began to realize like, there's no separation. Like, you know, and then that kind of got me back to concepts like the great work. So Crowley, even as much as he's known for magic, really thought of the great work as waking up. And we can argue about how he conceptualized that or what he thought of it his, or his ideals about it or how good he, his techniques necessarily would be about creating those effects. But we can't, it'd be very hard to argue that that wasn't super important to him. And particularly towards the end of his life, I think, where he really sort of wrote and talked more about that part of the path. And, um, and so I began to see this all as like part of the same thing, all skillful means, all uh, just ways of working with the three trainings, using concentration to support insight, using concentration to support magic, which hopefully is supporting training and morality and ethics. And, uh, and all of this just basically reinforcing each other and working together as a cohesive whole and insight from a magical point of view really providing um, a sort of dissolution of boundaries, appreciation of interdependence, interconnectedness, the causality of things unfolding and getting much more fine-grained, nuanced appreciation of sort of causality and karma and dependent arising of how um, various thoughts, uh, you know, might make the world, you know, all actions are led by the mind, mind is their master, mind is their maker, actor, think with a defiled state of mind, etc. and so forth, right? The first words of the Dhammapada are literally this, right? They're literally magic. And talking about how magic and suffering and wisdom are all related to each other, and that by training the mind to understand its deep intentions and movements and emotions, that is the work of Buddhism explicitly, unavoidably, intrinsically, unapologetically. And those kinds of insights really helped me sort of put all of those together. That's very interesting. I'm curious what you think. Well, let me, I'll ask it in two stages. You mentioned there, magic in the dark night stage. Could you just unpack that zip file a little bit? Yeah, right. That's the, that's the spicy stuff. <laughs> so magic in the dark night is very much, first the dark night, for those not aware of what this means, you know, you, you have your sort of peak experience in the arising and passing away, and then you enter what the Theravada would call a series of stages, dissolution, fear, misery, disgust, desire for deliverance, and then reobservation, which is boringly named, but usually relatively challenging, tight, reactive, touching your crazy fear of madness and death. Um, What's a better name for that stage? <laughs> 
know. Um, yeah, it almost defies like, yeah, we need more um, onomatopoetic uh, something. You know that yeah. scream uh, painting? Right. Yeah, absolutely. We, we need, yeah, something like that to really do this proper justice. And so, um, and as you're crossing through those, each has its own magical quality. Right, so like dissolution is this sort of wide dissolving thing where you may not be able to find your body. You, you can't find your boundaries. You may feel like you're dissolving through the floor or like suddenly attention may feel radically out of phase with things, things you could previously tune into with such a high level of clarity, like suddenly there's this diffuse attention, which for people who react to it one way, it can be very cool and blissful and open and expansive and healing. And for people who react it to it another way, like makes them freak out because they don't seem like anything like the coherent um, sort of fixed point in space actor, agent, controller, doer, knower, beer that they were before. And th that reactivity can lead to fear, misery, disgust, desire for deliverance. And just something sort of biochemical seems to lead people through those, that sort of whole person tour that um, hero's journey, if you will, of descent into the underworld of ourselves and our shadow from a Jungian point of view. And so the Dark Knight actually has the power to be profoundly magically transformative, but it can also be magical. So, I mean, I've still seen great, you know, one time I saw this great field of crystal skulls in front of me during a fear stage that I went through. And, um, you know, people can suddenly like feel the collective trauma of the world or like the collective suffering of the universe. People can have very powerful sort of grief and remorse responses to things that they've done or um, really have powerful sort of hopefully cathartic and eventually healing um, traumas and stuff come up from their childhood or their past or military service or whatever it was that caused um, the trauma. And these can come up in powerfully archetypal ways that can actually be super Jungian, like where you are, you know, the the warrior or you are the the victim or you are the the healer even. Um, or the wounded healer or the whatever. There are lots of sort of archetypal things that can come up in this space. And then there's just the frank and far end of the magical stuff of seeing demons and creepy ass ghosts and shit, right? And creepy energies and, and very thoughts that from an ordinary psychiatric point of view would seem super paranoid, very delusional, psychotic. And from a magical point of view might be like, okay, I have these demons to work with. And so, for example, um, have a friend who on a very intense retreat uh, had her issues come up as monsters is what she was calling them. And these monsters uh, became like lifelike things that she was seeing and interacting with. And But she had actually had some training in Tantra. And so she started listening to them and doing a feed her demons practice. We're asking them what they needed and like feeding it to them in some sort of magical way and listening to them and what they required to be happy and healthy and well and nourished and satisfied. And over a three-day super weird process that many people might have thought of as frank mental illness, 
she transformed them into her like herd of pets. And suddenly these pet monsters were all like following her around like happy puppies, sort of her entourage and support network of now transformed magical beings. Like that's profound work, right? So that's profound deep dive, magical, archetypal, tantric, et cetera, work. And also she was simultaneously going through the process of insight on this retreat. So that was part of her dark night phase. And then when she shifted out into equanimity as the sort of whole um, monster pet transformation occurred. And so, um, yeah, I'll just stop there. And what are your thoughts? Hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting indeed. And even the most, even the classic, if you like, um, well, I think there's there's no religious tradition that does not include imagery of that kind, whether it's Padmasambhava subduing uh, the transforming the uh, local deity spirits, the La of the Tibetan and Himalayan region into, you know, enslaving them, you could say, or liberating them, depending on your point of view. And that's always an open question with such things, <laughs> with conquest of any kind, I think, um, into Dharma protectors, you know. Uh, or uh, Jesus, of course, we know did many miracles involving things of that nature. And s similarly, there are uh, images like that in, in the Islamic tradition. I'm curious, uh, when, in your case, the seeing of the crystal skulls, for example, which I understand is one visionary example, and in her case of seeing these monsters, um, could you uh, clarify that word seeing? Was it in the sense that the data feed coming in through your eyes was replaced by crystal skulls, or in her case, included these monsters? Or, or was it that in the mind's eye, the imaginal or the second sight sort of realm, there was a vivid sense of um, other in that sense? So in terms of the other practitioner, I, I, I'm not sure I know the precise answer to that, but for like my own crystal skulls, I was seeing a field of crystal skulls. Like I was, like I'm seeing the monitor, like, you know, I can see these lights, like I can see them just like that. And so full on, like, this is here. Wow, check out all those crystal skulls. And when I would close my eyes, it totally replaced the otherwise, you know, back of eyelid sort of staticky thing that I would be seeing. So this is full visualization. And then I've actually had, you know, experiences where I became fully immersed in a space that was like as real as this studio room, where suddenly I'm there, like and as real as this is. Like a holodeck. Yeah, like a holodeck. Absolutely. And or and so and then like on fire casino retreats, like I had this one series of what all just not very politely called lower astral nasties. They probably deserve a much nicer term than that. It's not very compassionate, but it um, tells you something of the traditions I'm coming from, where there were these relatively creepy, clearly not very nice beings who started showing up and they looked like kind of like creepy centipedes and sort of other creepy crawly sort of archetypal creepy things. Some sort of look like crystal squids. Some look like um, kind of crab-like things. Um, some look like semi-sinister mushrooms with eyes. And, um, you know, they would be waddling up on their kind of mushroom feet or whatever. Um, and I just, when I was seeing these beings and I'm seeing these like 
three-dimensionally like living like they're a thing and they seem to have their own energy and quality. I don't know where they're going to walk or what they're going to do. But as they started showing up, I was like, well, okay, we'll start, we'll start the nice methods. And I started sending, sending them a lot of loving kindness. Whereas just like, you know, actively projecting the feeling towards them as well as using active phrases, basically in mantra form of loving standard loving kindness phrases. And I would watch them like all of a sudden, like take notice what, hey, that's kind of cool. Huh, this guy's sending me loving kindness. And I can tell this is not the typical reaction that they're used to receiving, right? And you can see them just like sort of stopping and going, oh, that's neat. And then just kind of eventually they'd get their fix and they'd kind of wander away. And then I got the sense they decided to bring their friends. They're like, hey, this guy's, giving out loving kindness to like, you know, creatures like us, y'all should go check him out. And so like a whole bunch of them started showing up. And so for some number of days, that was the primary thing I was dealing with was, you know, these somewhat challenging to look at and even kind of be around the vibe of, like, it wasn't like I liked them, right? Like there was some visceral part of me that's like, yeah, okay, this is like, you know, having this reaction that was not very appreciative. And yet I was like, yeah, but the overall practice, the overall feel is going to be loving. So we're going to make that the dominant note, you know, in the chord here of what the experience of them showing up in, in my magical space is. And they seemed to really like it. And then they all just kind of wandered away, like, cool, okay. And then it was weird after that, I got the sense that like the space I was in, like the, the retreat center setting that I had, maybe they were just like local spirits that just like hanging out in the space. And that somehow I had, the whole space felt better to me through having gone through that. I felt like I was more a part of it or welcome or appreciated or something. And the first loving kindness practices were actually taught to help um, some monks that were being troubled by some forest spirits or whatever that were showing up and giving them a hard time and scaring them. And so I can really appreciate how it can change the feel of a room or a setting or a forest grove or whatever you happen to find yourself in when you do this. I'm curious. So in that case, was this also a data feed through the eyes level of seeing or was it? Yes, yeah, so this is I'm, I'm seeing this, you know, this is fire casino visualization level stuff. I was seeing these beings like yeah, so take your inner TV snow static world and form it into this large three-dimensional, very detailed living scene, basically. Eyes closed. Yeah, but I have seen stuff eyes open too. So like at the stronger end of Fire Casino, I've seen stuff eyes open that there appeared to be in the room. Like what? Well, the, the one I've told before is like, I was just getting home from a shift in the ER and I, I came up to this room actually where I'm sitting now, but at the time it wasn't a studio. It was my sleep when it's light out bedroom because it has no windows. And right there was a bed. And on that bed, I saw this semi-transparent but fully formed three-dimensional thing with pretty fancy clothing on that looked old and traditional from some tradition I wasn't sure but and then sort of a beak bird face nose and kind of a little bit slightly elaborate head and I thought that's eh, probably a Garuda like I have no time for the Garudas right now <laughs> and I literally was so tired I just laid down like literally in its space 
So like, as I was like closing my eyes, I saw the thing around me and I closed my eyes and was so tired. I was asleep within probably a minute or so and just collapsed. But, um, you know, so that was a fully formed seeing the thing kind of experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, amazing. Well, I'd like to touch on this a bit later, but it seems like something like a robust loving kindness practice would be a good um, thing to have if in case one encounters such situations. And perhaps there are other yeah. things that we could discuss later. But before that, you mentioned that when you went to talk to Joseph Goldstein about the powers and this, he denied knowledge of it. And you've criticized what you've called the mushroom culture in Western uh, Buddhism, particularly in the uh, Western Vipassana movement, in the insight context, where uh, people are not told about the, the map of insight, which you've been referring to, people are not told about the possibility of becoming a stream enterer and going up through the paths and so on, as, as we've discussed in other interviews and you've discussed uh, widely. Um, there seems to be a similar mushroom culture here in regards to the powers, yet many of these uh, teachers themselves encountered figures like Deepa Ma oh, yeah. on their travels in India and themselves will recount having seen powers related phenomena uh, yet that doesn't in the same way that they in, in encountered the maps of insight do you want to talk about deepa ma a little bit or should i just to sort of unpack that for people who don't know the story because that's almost generational knowledge right so they were the generation that's that met her i was the generation that heard about them meeting her and now we've got a new generation that may not even know about her yeah. You want to talk about her? Absolutely. Let me uh, finish the question. I think it'll be a perfect segue. I suppose my question to you is, what's going on there? We know that, or, or it has been speculated that one of the reasons for the mushroom culture in the insight tradition is that those who are bringing it back in certain uh, groups did not like the competitiveness. They didn't like the masculine uh, feeling of it. And they made a sort of executive decision on behalf of Western culture, it seems, to excise, yeah. yeah, excise that part of the tradition, um, in a certain sense, I suppose. Well, perhaps you can say more about that. Do you think something similar went on with the powers? People write about and talk about uh, having seen them, but deny all knowledge in a teaching context, and that's similar, I think, with with enlightenment. And there, you know, there are many speculations as to why that is. What's your take on it? Well, as I mentioned on a previous podcast somewhere, like, do you seriously want like 120 people getting into Power Z territory and exploring this stuff when you might have three teachers that are able to give them a 10 minute interview every other day and all these people coming in on large, you know, not that well screened from all these traditions? And do you want them even in Power's territory? Like, you know, that's a first question. Like, do you have the resources to handle what that can look like? Because it can look super weird because, you know, I do retreats, fire casino retreats, where they're explicitly about getting powers is one of the things we do, right? We intentionally cultivate powers. We do magical practices. We do rituals. We, you know, get our concentration crazy strong. And then we attempt to do stuff with that and open up the floodgates to a lot of that world. And as I can tell you, it can get pretty wild. Right. This is something that not everybody is qualified to handle. Not everybody is comfortable handling. And, you know, and I appreciate that. Right. And is it true that this could just be a terrible distraction from insight work, which is super important? Absolutely. I totally agree with that. Is it true that some reasonable number of these teachers may not have had these experiences and so are not personally qualified to guide people through them? OK, I'll believe that. Is it true 
that to get this into the mainstream, which they really wanted to do, right? They really wanted to make this stuff respectable, just like mindfulness, right? It really wanted to say, there's no side effects, nothing bad ever happens. We're just learning to pay attention. This is all good, right? So this is part of the messaging and advertising strategy that allowed this to creep into the clinical mainstream and be acceptable to Western society and become a multi-billion dollar industry. That was the marketing shtick and part of it. And so they very much wanted to divorce themselves from the weird, which was not going to be able to translate to the mainstream in that kind of way into clinical practice and to, you know, covers of Time magazine and stuff, you know. So um, I get it. It was a strategic decision. It was a practical decision. It was a limitation of some of the teachers. It was a cultural decision. It was a very sort of paternalistic and maternalistic decision. Right. So it was very much that and kind of heavy handedly so. And I also think it's true that they were reacting to the 60s and early 70s, which in some ways were such like an explosion of confused spiritual crazy that I think after about a decade of that, they kind of wanted to bring something back down to earth. And I appreciate that. They wanted something much more simple much more just look within, much more find your answers here, much more clean. And I get that aesthetic, right? I've had it at points myself and I super appreciate it. And there's a very valid place for that, that like, yeah, okay, yeah, 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 maybe magic. Okay, yeah, 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 maybe beings. Okay, yeah, 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 maybe rebirth, we don't know. But just this, just pay attention, just wake up. I mean, there's an aesthetic glory to that which is unmistakable and which still make, basically makes my hair stand up on end when I think about it in that kind of pure form. So I get why they made those decisions. The problem is not everybody even just doing a super secular, clean you know, practice of just paying attention to experience moment to moment is gonna be able to avoid the magical stuff right? It happens on retreats. It happened to people while I was there, just doing very simple practices of noticing the breath, of noticing the feet, of not getting lost in the stories and tape loops of the mind. And people would get into these experiences. And the problem is then, even if it's not a large percentage, it's enough that you should have teachers who are competent to handle that. And most of them aren't. And so that's a problem, right? And because they trained in this narrow band, then a whole generation of teachers got trained in a narrow band and didn't branch out to that, like say Rob, ba you know, Rob Rebea, obviously way more comfortable, like branching out to the, the wild ends of the path, but a lot of the teachers were not. And so then you get the sort of, if there was a generation that kind of at least knew this stuff was real and then made a decision, they created a generation that kind of didn't know this stuff was real and it had it edited out for them. And then they have this limited bandwidth of teacher and practice capability and not really appreciating the full range of the path. And again, good and bad, but um, yeah, now I think we're kind of like crawling back from some of the problems that happened as people got deeper into the path and maybe couldn't avoid magic even if they wanted to, which happens sometimes. You've criticized the, that attitude is actually not only uh, limiting the exposure or cutting out completely any reference to the magical aspects of those traditions, but also actually to their insight uh, potential, uh, denying the possibility oh, yeah. of insight. So 
I'm thinking of this mushroom culture in a broad sense in which you've criticized it both along the lines of insight. Not sure it would be fair to say, if we take your position, that the only thing excluded was magic and it was all about waking up. It seems like you've said in your books that even the waking up part itself was was excluded or neutered. What they were advertising was like waking up light. You know, and waking up light is like, yes, this will reduce your suffering. And yes, this will reduce your craving. And yes, this will make you a more wise, balanced, connected person. But then they sort of edited out all the complexities of what that actually means, how that actually happens, and all of the details. So it's interesting, they're still using the advertising strategies of awakening explicitly, right? That's baked in. You can't read John Cabot Zinn without seeing that basically from page one. You know, he gets to the point, this is about radical transformations of consciousness. So they were still using the advertising strategies, but they edited out all of the middle ground. It would be like saying, this is all about becoming an emeritus professor and then not bothering to mention high school, college, master's, PhD, postdoc, you know, like, you know, assistant professor, associate professor. They did they just cut all that part out and sort of glossed it. This is about emeritus professorship. But the, the middle, they, they just stopped talking about because it's messy, it's complicated, and they didn't want to deal with it. Some of them weren't qualified to deal with it. Not all of them had deep insights, and yet they were still promis promising emeritus professorship and tenure track or whatever, that you will have your suffering reduced. You will have your consciousness transformed when what that meant was deep insight process and the complicated work and all the strange stuff you can generally go through along the way, right? But that just wasn't going to sell as well, and they didn't know it as well. So both true. Hmm. I do find the skillful means argument unconvincing due to the way in which um, due to the way in which it was actioned. I think the skillful means argument of presenting certain things in certain contexts that are appropriate to the situation is sort of, it is it's sort of, a, can be quite sinister, I think. S s skillful means, whenever I hear anyone say skillful means, the word that always comes to my mind is sinister. There's something very <laughs> sinister about the justification of that phrase, skillful means. Sort of a dystopian term. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, sort of... Um, Daddy knows best or mother knows best kind of thing, as you correctly said. But anyway, that's, so you mentioned, uh, or, or we mentioned Deepama, and we mentioned that some of these uh, teachers had contact with people and recounted themselves, believing to have seen powers in action, and then mm -hmm. went on to edit them out. And uh, you, you expressed, you said, let's talk about Deepama. So, yeah, I mean, not, not everyone knows about Deepama. It's a wonderful book about her um, that's in English, but... What do you want to say about Deepa Ma? Yeah, so she was apparently a super nice person, straight out, extremely ethical, very kind. You know, when she was doing a lot of these practices, she was a grandmother, a householder, but she was trained by Manindraji. Basically, she, she very early on demonstrated just extraordinarily um, powerful concentration, just had a gift, just had, just was given some unusual capacity for this stuff. And then Manindraji basically, who was a meditation teacher who was very influential back in the day, um, basically said, well, hey, let's see if she can do all this old stuff and basically trained her in all the old Vasudhi Maga tech. And then she learned to do all these super cool things. 
and to, you know, admittedly, the power she was most known for, uh, known for was actually loving kindness. Apparently, she generated this field around her of amazing sense of just being loved and held and accepted, and that was palpable, that people in her presence just felt. And apparently, there's all kinds of stories about it just transforming the whole building she lived in, almost like this radiator of loving goodness. But there's many fascinating other stories, like her taking like a slice of potato and just like magicking it and giving it to someone and suddenly it tastes like chocolate, you know, and all kinds of weird, wild stuff like that. And time traveling back and sitting with the Buddha and receiving direct teachings and all kinds of wild stuff sh she could do. And, um, and so this is part of the, you know, the, when I, when I was coming up in this stuff, she was like sort of thought of as like one of the grand modern grandmothers of the tradition to me. And, you know, part of the modern mythology that I was entering into, and it was very common for her to be talked about and mentioned because she was clearly an extraordinary person. But it was also, you know, even her extraordinariness then also is a proof of concept. This stuff may be able to be real. Maybe you can actually do this. Maybe the old texts are right. Maybe deep concentration is the trick. And that's been the inspiration for all the fire casino and other casino stuff I've done since. Fascinating. So I'm curious, let me throw some traditions at you and see if you've got a take on them or if you've explored them. Have you, you, you mentioned the OTO and the Golden Dawn. Um, have you looked much into Goetian magic? A little bit. So, you know, Goetia is basically conjuring demons right? For those, anybody's, I'm no expert in the Goetia, but it's basically, Goetic magic is basically old school, medieval grimoire magic, where you're basically summoning demons to gain knowledge and or have them do stuff for you, basically as some part of a contract, command and control, exchange, whatever sort of situation. They basically turning them into like servitors or agents or you know trying to bargain with them in some way and they're notoriously dangerous um and notoriously sort of tricksterish and hard to deal with and a lot of people just think of this as a, a very dangerous branch of magic and ethically seriously questionable so you know getting into like solomonic magic you know, sort of the same kind of end of that tradition, obviously related in some ways, kind of the same. Then the, and, and even necromantic magic, where the standard logic, if you like conjured, you know, a dead spirit to go do something for you, usually you're con conjuring one out of purgatory or something, or maybe even hell, that hopefully if you were a good, you know, Christian or whatever, or, uh, Abrahamic, you know, practitioner, you are sending it on a good mission that is going to help its chances in the afterlife and maybe, uh, you know, improve its station in uh, such that, you know, through its good deeds, and you're actually doing this thing a favor versus sort of that's the nice end versus you are the command and control magician without any reasonable sense of ethics at all. And you simply want something done. You want some gold. You want somebody dead. You want to find hidden treasure. You want to do whatever. And you're just sort of, you know, morality and sense of ethics and all that be damned. You're just doing this thing because you want to do it. And maybe there's a demon 
that can do this thing and then hopefully it doesn't do something horrible to you in the process and all your wards and shields and circles and triangles and all that stuff hold and you say all the words right and nothing you know horrendous happens so I should mention, I have never done a single proper Goetic ritual like out of the books, though I have a bunch of them on my shelf. So I should be cautious here, right? My knowledge of this is superficial, but I have some friends who are actually serious Goetic practitioners. Um, uh, a, a necromancer friend of mine who's now in Chicago, for example. And so I get to sort of vicariously live through him and his Goetic adventures. What's your exposure to the tradition, what do you think of it? Why do you raise the question? I raise the question because it's a um, one of the main magical systems that people come across. Yeah. Uh, my my take on it is that, or part of my take on it is that, if you're capable of Goetian magic, then you're probably cap. You probably don't need it. Right. And, and if you need it then you probably aren't capable of it. Now that doesn't that's not a rule that holds true all the time and it depends on what you're using it for. But a lot of people use Goetian magic to see if it works, to see if I can, you know, conjure the thing just as a sort of test of concept. Um, it's I think it's there are safer ways of, of operating. Yeah, I mean it's so, it, it's really it's it's deal with the devil's it's deal with the devil territory, literally. Um I should say a few more things actually. So one that if if it wasn't clear, the ethics of go, that kind of magic make me super nervous, right? It's not really my cup of tea. It's not my magical style I'm comfortable with. If it's yours, cool. And I know some people who I respect a lot as magical practitioners who've gotten a lot out of it and said, yes, they learned a lot. It was very interesting, sometimes very powerful. Clearly there's a there there, um, but, yeah, ethically questionable. I should mention, I have done some things that many people looking at them would think that's basically Goetia, right? In its form, in its structure was like a close cousin. And I've done these when um, hanging out and doing active magic ritual with my friend who has a lot of Goetic experience. So same friend, like one time, uh, at night in Central Park, actually, around midnight, we went out into Central Park in Manhattan in New York and uh, did some really some, we did some old school gin magic, right, uh, which is very goetic in its feel. And we did, we definitely explicitly conjured some spirits who we believed could help us with various things, you know, um, uh, ask them uh, in much more nice ways than you typically would. And the Goetia still had up a lot of protection wards and um, uh, countermeasure tech available and on board should we need it. Uh, clearly, we're dealing with some entities that were questionably savory um, at best, uh, but relatively powerful. And but building in as much ethics and compassion tech as we possibly could, um, asking rather than commanding, uh, explaining that this might be beneficial for their karma and help them also gain in 
wisdom and and explaining why this was a beneficial act. So very much highly grounded in Buddhist ethics. So pretty modified in that regard. Um, and yeah, so, but in some ways, a clear close cousin of the whole vibe of the Goetia. Yeah, I ought to clarify my previous statement somewhat. In the music business, the thing that any, the, the classic or traditional response that a musician gives to a person, young person perhaps, who wishes to become a musician and says, what advice do you have for me to become a musician? <laughs> what advice do you have for me to become a musician? The advice is always, if you can do anything else, you should. That is the standard, <laughs> that's the standard response uh, for a good reason, because if that puts you off, then you wouldn't have made it anyway. And my previous statement is that if you, uh, if you can do Goetian magic, you probably don't need it. And if you need it, you probably can't do it. Is I think in that category of response, it's not going to stop anybody who's determined to do it. And it's not a condemnation of the technique. Um, but just like most musicians will tell non-musicians, warn them off <laughs> the uh, downsides of the musician's life. I think from a Goetian point of view, it's smart to, to take a similar approach. And indeed, the moral ambiguity the moral ambiguity that you raised is uh, a significant weak spot in any magical operation. If you're morally conflicted about casting up some, conjuring up some entity from some grimoire and bossing it around, if there's any moral ambiguity there or conflict in yourself, of course, it's a huge weak spot and endless tales about about what happens with such weak spots in such situations. What about Enochian magic, famous for its uh, famously criticized as sending magicians mad, being an incomplete system, having lacking in protection methods and so on, quite similar to the Goetian in a way. What do you think of the Enochian? Yeah, so I have played around some with Enochian. It's one of the things I ran into along the way, read a number of books on it, drawn out some tables, you know, thought about um, watchtowers and, and various, you know, parts of the squares and all of that stuff. And I would agree it's a pretty incomplete system. It's fascinating, right? So that's one of the, the things I will give it. It is fascinating. It's super interesting, like a great phone, do, phone book or index to all of these possible things, you know, um, sort of like the great bureaucracy of the angelic world, right? So it's, it's very interesting. It's like the ultimate in bureaucratic magic. <laughs> I think if you were actually dealing with a bureaucratic system, it might be perfectly appropriate because that's basically what it is. Could you say a bit about how it came about? Uh, because that's also very fascinating, John D. and so on. Yeah, so so John D. So um, the whole st I've actually been to the the um, a museum, which in theory is like maybe the attic or whatever that John D. was in, though maybe it's moved and wasn't the original. I don't know. And so in Prague about this and. Uh, John Dee, of course, court astrologer to Queen Elizabeth I, mathematician, polymath in general, uh, brilliant, clearly, incredibly well-read alchemist, um, uh, probably spy and probably part architect of the entire British Empire plan and helped to launch the British Empire as a thing 
both visionarily and probably through espionage and then got involved with scrying angels and a guy named um uh kelly edward kelly edwin Ooh. kelly and who was um straight out of the gate known to be something of a charlatan con man absurd individual who and then they ended up sort of through him channeling this incredibly remarkable system of basically grids of squares and the whole Enochian language and alphabet, the Enoch, like the language of the angels. And then, you know, ended up going to Central Europe to try to turn, you know, base metals into gold and alchemy and all this stuff and the philosopher's stone, et cetera, didn't work out. Um, then ends up sort of dying in poverty and obscurity or whatever, you know, after loses magical books and had falling out with um, Edwin Kelly. And I'm sort of glitching parts of the history here, probably because I'm not some profound John D. scholar. But for those who are not familiar with this, hopefully that's a cursory introduction that will encourage you to get the better version from like somewhere, some better source. But, um, but then the system of magic sort of ended up in like, books and boxes and has a sort of strange history of how it finally came to be sort of formalized into Western magic in the last hundred and something years or so. And then it ended up being incorporated into the sort of Thelema and all of that. And clearly a very intricate, interesting system that yes, is clearly nothing resembling complete but has some of that sort of grimoire character of the great index of like in the bureaucracy of angels, here's who you would go to for what, here's how you call them using specific combinations of these Enochian letters and Enochian calls and how to pronounce them is now all well formalized. And so yeah, you can just buy books on this stuff and do it. And like, do I think it's any worse than the grimoire stuff or the like, you know, trying to do Cyprianic magic or trying to do, you know, the Goetia or any of these. No, it seems pretty much in that same general vein. So I don't regard that it as like better or worse. I think it is similar flavor. Um, and, and so, uh, like I've done a little bit of this stuff. I actually didn't think it was all that powerful for me. Maybe it just was my phase in magical career or it just was a beginner, I don't know. But I can see if you like the feel of that kind of thing, if you like that old school approach, it may have real resonance. Um, but I would learn a bunch of other magical tech along with it. I, yeah, I would definitely learn basic banishing stuff, how to handle things. I would definitely do a bunch of meditation if you're going to go into this, make sure you can handle your own mind. And it, while it is in some ways from the, land, you know, the language of the angels, so, in some ways it kind of, rather than dealing with demons, right, which in some ways is sort of a conceptual upgrade from a trying to stay towards the light point of view. Um, uh, yeah, I would definitely keep your ethics and wits about you when doing this sort of stuff. Yeah, fascinating. John Dee, of course, legendarily credited by some as with the sinking of the Spanish Armada. Mm -hmm named uh, the original 007, the one who turned around the fortunes of England and turned turned it into the power that it actually became. Yeah, very fascinating um, myths and legends and semi-history and history around John Dee. Yeah. What about Kabbalah? 
Wow. So again, I'm barely qualified to talk about the topic straight out of the gate, right? So like if you have the neo-Kabbalah, like which has been moderately westernized, I'm going to be even one step worse than that. So any serious Kabbalistic scholar should just probably just go get a cup of coffee while I or something while I say this next part. Um, I've played around with it some as it comes to me through highly filtered through Crowley and, you know, books like The Tree of Life and, you know, as it as it came in its very sort of, yeah, more sanitized, secularized is the wrong word, but filtered through an aesthetic that was trying to fuse a lot of magical traditions together with the sense of sort of pantheism and, and perennialism and something. And I think the tree of life is a pretty cool map. Like I think that through, you know, permuting the tetragrammaton, you can certainly get into some very fascinating states. I've had friends who have built like bodies of light through elaborate sort of long form Kabbalistic Kabbalistic rituals with, you know, more real Kabbalistic practitioners and said that was um, fascinating. But my knowledge is relatively superficial. Um, I don't generally incorporate any of that kind of stuff explicitly in my rituals, but I very much think about the tree of life and how it relates to insight stages a lot. Um, Tifereth arising and passing away, you know, Doth and Charanzan and the abyss, you know, between, you know, absolute and the lower um, three realms, very much as dark nighty sort of territory. And like that can have these variants, you can kind of go this way or that way. And each, and so, and path working on the tree of life is very interesting. I've done a little bit of that. And, you know, thinking about what Ayan, Ayan Sof, Ayan Sof are and what those are and what those mean and how they might correlate with other Buddhist paths or other insight stage maps or Tibetan boomies. I've certainly done plenty of thinking about that, but it's, again, I would, any real Kabbalist is going to be looking at what I'm saying and just going, oh, this is not the kind of person who should be giving advice on this. So I, I'm more just describing something of my own experience and impressions and exposure rather than, so I should be careful. Does that make sense? And respectful of my ignorance. <laughs> Perfect sense. Yeah, I want to ask you about a couple of other systems. But one point: a lot of these systems that we've we've listed so far are notorious for, um, or often criticised, even from within the tradition, at booby trapping, or deliberately leaving red herrings in their presentations of the systems. And it seems that there are different ways to hide instructions. One of them is to just simply give the wrong instruction or to set up an internal contradiction, which if you're not paying attention, um, will render you ineffective in some way. Uh, the other way of, of doing it, it seems, is to simply write it down exactly as it appears, like they do in the Buddhist sutras, and assume no one's going to take it. Well, I don't think this is what they necessarily assume, but one of the consequences of that is it's self-secret, as they call it. You know, is that uh, yes. you can write, put it right, right there in front of you. And the person's going to perhaps even be doing a tantric sadhana every single day, or looking at the Theravadas era, um, Hinayana era sutras and see it all written out and just assume it's poetic or metaphorical or something of that nature. What's your take on that topic in the Western traditions in particular that we've listed? Secrecy? Secrecy in the terms of, well, let's say you take a Kabbalah book like Mathers or something like that off the shelf 
from Amazon or you go into your local Barnes and Nobles <laughs> and you pick up a Samuel Mathers book or something if you can find it there. Uh, it's all about the Kabbalah. It's about the tree of life. You know, I've heard people say, oh, a lot of times they put the tree backwards and it's from the wrong side and so on. So what do you think about that aspect? If someone's going out to buy a Goetian grimoire or they're out to buy a Kabbalah text, how likely is that to actually be usable? Well, I mean, there's obviously quite a range and it depends on usable for what. I mean, is it relatively easy to pick up one of these books to think about, you know, Malkuth or whatever, however you pronounce it? I'm probably terrible at pronouncing um, Hebrew, but and to think about what that means and represents as, you know, they sort of describe it as an archetype and sort of do a meditation where you tune your consciousness to that and, you know, to see what happens and write down those results. Well, that's the easy end right? That's not particularly challenging. Just like books on chakras, the same kind of thing. You can pick, pick up a book on, a, on a, the chakras and tune to the, you know, the throat chakra and see what comes up there for you. And it might, you know, visualize a color or whatever, you know, and with the tarot, if you're doing like the, the Crowleyan, you know, version of tarot meets uh, tree of life, you can think about the paths in each of the, you know, the cards, and you could have the card there, and you could just do a visualization. And that might be really sort of interesting from an archetypal sort of basic kind of low level magic ritual point of view. Um, I am definitely something of a high concentration snob, right? <laughs> I will admit that freely, even though I do plenty of ritual stuff that doesn't involve high concentration. But I think that low dose, the sort of psychological level, the archetypal level, um, you can get something basic out of these. They're interesting. They might be helpful for even learning to tune consciousness to various qualities, even just building up those meta, sk meta skills as a basic meditation practice. Um, and, you know, I know people that on relatively small doses of ritual have gotten into some really interesting territory, like arising and passing away experiences and stuff. It happens sometimes if people are just for whatever reason really ready for that. So that's a possibility. Um, but like, is that like high-end Kabbalah, like the Kabbalists do? Like any Kabbalist is going, well, no, this is super intense practice, super intense study, like very long hours. Like what they're doing when they're doing, you know, Kabbalah is like, looks almost nothing like that. One is like the, you know, the, the kindergarten one hour class and one is grad school by comparison, you know, in terms of how hard it is and how much time and effort, interest and learning one is, would be pouring into that kind of practice. These people, you know, the real deal, take it super seriously, just like, you know, I've taken serious Theravadan practice, uh, you know, very, very seriously. And, you know, done at 22 hours a day at points and stuff like that. I mean, that's what, you know, the high end of Kabbalah looks like. And intense contemplation, intense reading of the Torah, learning all the numerology and the permutations and all that stuff and the theory and the old supporting texts and all that. And so, you know, in the same kind of way, like with mindfulness, if you just sit down and do some basic breath counting or whatever, most people, they'll settle down a little bit, but they're not going to get a lot out of it. But again, there's a range. So I think, you know, most of these sort of mainstream books on, on Kabbalah are the same way. Interesting. I want to ask you about a couple more magic systems and then pivot in another direction. What about the Castaneda system? <laughs> yeah, I have super mixed feelings about Castaneda, like with a lot of these. So my history with this is my mom was reading me these books when I was a kid. 
So she read all of them to my sister and I, actually. Uh, so this would have been the late 70s, early 80s. And then, so I was exposed to them and I just found them fascinating. I mean, they're really interesting stories. And Nawal and Tone, you know, Tone all and all these, you know, the, the, and the fascinating journey. And then, you know, sort of peyote being mixed into that and the sort of social cultural aspects. I just found them, I, I related to them very much at the time as just fascinating stories. Like I would have related to the Hobbit or Harry Potter or anything in some kind of kid-like way. Cause I was a kid when I was going through those. And then later on, I went back and looked at like the Eagle's gift and the art of dreaming and books like that. And I thought, you know, despite the history, right? Because if you look at the history of these, he says this is all stuff he actually did and his own ventures and real stuff. Maybe he just made all of it up. Maybe he made like 95% of it up. You know, what's the there there from a historical point of view? And, you know, then he was like, you know, he had his own order with witches. And but like, was it like there's this controversy about like, was any of it actually the real stuff he said it was? That said, there's tech there that is real. There's some tech there that is real. There's some real advice that actually works. There's somebody somehow, either in the sources he was reading or from his own experience or whatever, there is stuff in there that has some value. So I would say definitely buyer beware, definitely read up on the history of this stuff and like the controversies if you're going to go into it. So that at least you're going in eyes open to, you know, whatever aspects of fraud or deception or whatever may have been involved in these books creation, and then pick up a book like The Art of Dreaming or The Eagle's Gift and go, wait a second, there is probably some real spiritual tick, sorry, tech there that has some validity and some mythic resonance and some power, even if it came from some possibly super questionable sources. That's my take on it. But it definitely takes some interpretation and you would need some other practices and grounding and something else. Or if you're doing peyote, it would probably be very helpful to have real people around who really do peyote and real rituals helping you with that, right? Um, you know, but potent, you know, I gets a lot of good reviews in the psychonautic scene. I've interviewed actually one of his inner circle ladies, ladies. Oh, twice. I, I wish I, I'm sorry, I missed that interview. Naimi Rez wow. was heavily involved in the writing of The Art of Dreaming, for example, and we have a whole podcast discussing that. The Dreaming Tech, she goes into quite a bit of detail on, on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, again, I, I, as I said, I appreciated those books and was like, there's real tech there. You can feel it. You can tell it, and it, it, some of it checks out, or at least in my own experience. Interesting. So, yeah, so I, yeah. So that's my hopefully somewhat balanced take on it that is respectful to the strangeness of the history while acknowledging some of its real power. Okay, last last system, and then I want to ask you a couple more very interesting questions. Buddhist magic. I super appreciate its tech. Super appreciate its tech. I think that it's, in terms of workable traditions, super workable. You just have to have the concentration chops. That's the entrance price. If you're going to do Buddhist magic, 
and really do it. So you're seeing it, feeling it, hearing it, etc. You have to take the time to get your concentration strong. This is non-trivial, but if you can do that, it works. It's real. It's there. Like, you know, we could quibble about things about objective reality, but from most magical practitioners' point of view, if you want to have super magical experiences that are very, very powerful and have that feel of I am doing magic in that old, like, well, not that old Harry Potterish sense, like where you're literally seeing the stuff, you can feel the energy coming off your hands, you can see the pentagrams that you're actually drawing, you can you know, actually get out of body and travel to other realms and really hear stuff and manipulate energy and all of that stuff. There's a there there. You just got to pay the entrance price, which for me is like 100 to 150 hours on intensive retreat. And I've been doing this for a while. So, you know, your experience may vary. If you're deep ama, obviously, like, <laughs> this is going to work out super well for you. And some people go into this stuff and they have a much harder time getting to the level of concentration mentioned called malleable and wieldy. And when you get to that level of concentration, suddenly you can do this stuff. It's just on tap. It's like you're suddenly a magical being. The strangest thing is when you're there, it feels like the most natural thing. Like, of course, you could always do magic. Like, of course, you could move your fingers, assuming you have fingers and they haven't been stroked out or something, right? You know, of course you can do this. And then as, like, as you cut the power and it just vanishes and you're like, where did it go? what the hell? So that's one of the, the, the things you learn when you do this is it's hyper dependent on being basically on retreat and having the level of horsepower built up in the short term. And that's very much how they describe it. They describe a person, you know, goes to an isolated place, they power up on casinas and jhanas, and then they do this thing and then they leave the place. And for a lot of people, the magic then ends right? That's you gained the access and then it disappears. And that's been my experience and the experience of nearly everybody I know who's done this. But the, the thing is, there is, you can actually friggin' do it. Whereas most of the magical traditions, it's at the level of inner visualization sort of, but not really seeing it, inner imaginative eye, and you're not really there, right? Yeah. I mean, if you manage to travel out of body through, you know, using some of the standard books, Okay, that can be very magical, but in terms of like doing it very integrated in this space and this life where you're like in the room doing, you know, that is hard to do as anybody who's ever tried to do an LBRP or whatever and actually see the pentagrams knows, right? This is not easy. But when I'm on fire casino retreat, I can actually do this. And this is the only time I've, I've actually had collective magic where other people could see some of the stuff I was doing as well. And I could see some of the stuff they were doing. Right. And, and so if you're looking for that level of experience, um, I highly recommend um, taking a look at the Buddhist magical tech and the fire casino website that talks about a, the fact that it can be done and b the challenges, because this is not easy. And, but who said magic was easy, right? You know, um, and most people have said it wasn't. And I think they were generally right at the high end of immediate, really unusual magic that feels like you always thought magic should feel and it almost never does. So I'm very, very grateful for that and super grateful for the ethics because that is what is clearly, you know, even as much as the Golden Dawn and, and Thelema tries to build an ethics, it doesn't do as nearly as well as Buddhism from my point of view. 
you know, and even as much as, you know, the Christians who were doing grimoire magic thought they were all like, you know, holy in God and asking God to protect them and bless this magical working. And then they would do really scary, you know, unethical stuff, right? Um, I think the, the Buddhism gets that part in spades as well. Does it also at its best tie it in with the great work of awakening and all of that? Yeah, if you get it in its old school form that really valued that. Um, old Theravada, you know, old school Tibetan-y stuff. Yeah, that they really appreciate that being built in and give it its due. And so, yeah, very, very thankful for that tech. Um, is it a little bit limited and not quite as creative as some other magical traditions? Absolutely. It has a sort of a formalism about it, a narrowness of its magical conceptions and things that I find pretty limiting. It's not very creative and fun like chaos magic is or as colorful as plenty of other traditions. Uh, and But, you know, the Tibetan stuff can be pretty cool with colors and, and stuff, but it's very formalized. And so I, I myself, in my own practice, take the chaos magic perspective, amplify it with the ethics and underlying tech of Buddhist magic, and then come up with something that at least for me, uh, and drawing on a lot of other ritual stuff I've studied, um, is more kind of full field, full spectrum, like it, it feels more complete to me than some of the old school Theravadani stuff, and even some of the Tibetan stuff. That's fascinating. Let's talk a bit about natural proclivity. You've mentioned in other places that some people are, for instance, stronger senders than receivers or vice versa, and that some people have certain gifts, often hereditary, it seems. And this is this is recounted in, in every tradition from the Tibetan to, to, to the English, you know, in terms of things like precognition, healing, uh, re reading energies and so on. Uh, and you've also mentioned that you've never met anyone who has the full complement, the full bag of tricks naturally. I wonder if you have a kind of working master list of these talents or gifts or the categories of them. And I'm also curious, what are your natural proclivities in this area? Wow, that's a lot. Okay, so I'm going to start with just with the master list. Um, so I actually very much Dungeons and Dragons, right? Played it a lot as a kid. Uh, I very much kind of, you know, and it, in the, if you go in the player's handbook, it very much sort of, you know, has this sort of categorization system for magic, which is actually very reasonable, you know, and conjurations and, and stuff. And, and so I actually think a, a kind of a modified Dungeons and Dragons magic categorization system. Uh, you know, and there's clearly, you know, the sort of standard ones of there is divination, right? There's clairvoyance, clairaudience, clairsentience, whatever, the clairs. Uh, there's um, sort of conjuration, evocation, you know, uh, and all of that, right? So there's transformation, transfiguration, whatever, um, that kind of stuff. And then I sort of, you know, things I think about are energy work, which is sort of its own thing, like everything related to energy manipulation and channels in oneself and in others. Um, yeah, and then 
let's see here, what else have you got? You've got elemental magic as a whole nother way I think about magical work very much. Actually, the more fire casino stuff I do, the more my practice looks like elemental stuff. I very much appreciate the framework of the Brahma Viharas, which is just kind of its own little thing, right? As a sort of a, a tradition. Um, then in terms of working with entities, like being a good astral neighbor and and you know teaming up with people on the astral plane or entities on the astral planes or etheric planes or whatever so i very much think of like entity work as its own kind of category so very much like the groom work stuff is a lot you know very sort of entity uh work um one of the other sort of major categories just kind of off the top of my head so those are some of the the big ones um and you know sort of geomancy is its own category related to um, and, you know, so I use pretty standard magical categorization. None of that was, it's not a particularly profound uh, list. And I'm aware of like other categorization systems like, um, you know, Yoga Sutras of Patanjali is one um, that sort of has its own sort of systems of various things. And then, of course, the standard Buddhist texts of Sudhimaga, Vimudumaga have their own categorization, you know, so, you know, knowledge of others' minds, divine ear, divine eye, past lives, etc and manifesting things, you know, which is usually falls under elemental magic. Um, and then of course, healing is its own huge category, which may relate to all of those, but in some way very much its own work. And I think a lot about that when I was even in clinical practice, I would think about like, oh, what's the energy in the room? How do I, you know, work with this, you know, words and language and my presence and their energy to try to craft something that's hopefully more healing and, um, yeah, and then there's all kinds of other magical categories like a political magic, societal magic, you know, those sorts of things. Uh, and then the magic of awakening itself and, you know, the magic of deconstructing things, the magic of vipassana, right, which is something that isn't really talked about a lot in most magical traditions, just the simple power of being able to deconstruct something into its sensate fragments and components is in and of itself an extremely powerful magical act and jhanic magic as well. Just the simple fact of being able to get into jhanas is its own thing. And then very much realm magic, right? Which is traveling out of body and going various places and being different things. Um, that's its own category and body of work. So in terms of my own magical gifts, uh, I've been doing dream stuff since I was a kid. Right. So I'm pretty unusual dream magic practitioner um, from everything from sort of semi prognostic stuff to full on out of body travels to lucid dreaming, archetypal work, working through emotions and relationships. And actually, I have a list that I could, you know, with enough time, recite of all the magical spells I've cast in dreams. So since going back to when I was like five and I first started doing this kind of work. And so like, which is varies from like super simple stuff. Like I remember one of the more profound ones was I had uh, like a, this is like a C size battery in my hand and I just squeezed and it disappeared. Doesn't sound like a profound magical spell for a dream, but it was like, ooh, to actually make something disappear and truly be gone and not like recur when you think about it and do that kind of stuff is very powerful. Um, I've done in my dream work a tremendous amount of combat magic. So particularly early in my life, but still sometimes it is very common for me to get into magical combat in my dreams. 
So, which can involve a lot of, you know, it, it looks basically just like the stuff you'd see in like World of Warcraft or something, right? It's very much that kind of magic. So defensive magic, combat magic um, is something I had a tremendous amount of experience with and uh, in my early life. Um, and I think one of my other cities has been mentioned a number of times, I have a ridiculous amount of energy, which doesn't sound like a power until you realize how incredibly useful it is to have a lot of energy. So I just have a tremendous amount of energy to just pour into projects and work and writings and creative things and you know my current research interests and all of that. And so, and still keep other, up other practices and stuff at the same time. Um, what are some other things I've had some skill with? I've had some weird, what I'll call like knacks. So like in the ER, I could just feel when people had trigger points. I could just walk into a room and know you have this trigger point here, you have this trigger point here, and this is contributing to your pain. Now, let me just make those points better and see if you still have pain going on. And if if so, we'll do some more work up on you. That kind of thing. I could I could sometimes sense them even just walking into the room. I couldn't tell you how I could do that. It was just like my hands would know. Oh, if I touch here, it's going to hurt right there. And this is contributing to what's going on with them. I've sometimes known people's diagnoses just occasionally. This is not something I was good at. Just on walking into the room, I have friends who are way better at this than me. Um, like my friend Monica was just much better at that. But like occasionally I would just have like, oh, I just know something that I shouldn't be able to know. Um, I've occasionally known what people were thinking, even when they were trying intentionally to not have me know that. That's super sporadic. That sounds weird, but like, um, it's just happened a few times. Um, I've rarely been prognostic. I've just had a very few prognostic things that have ever come to me, um, but they were all true, which is weird. But like, would I think myself as a good prognostician? No. Um, I have this weird thing where I can, like when I'm drawing tarot cards for myself, I talked about this on another podcast. They're just like freakishly accurate. They never tell me anything I don't already know, but it's a sort of a weird thing. Like, of course you would, you know, draw like, um, you know, the Knight of Swords or something during the presidential debates, you know, like, because, you know, or actually it's a vice presidential debate. Sorry, I'm going to do that card, you know, sort of super appropriate card for that. Um, it's just this is one of countless examples I can do. And um, I seem to have had some natural concentration and insight ability, right? So the fact that I was getting into the rising and passing away stages in daily life on super small amounts of practice and sometimes even when doing things like dancing, right? So clearly, if you think about the magic of insight, uh, I had some talent there, right? So it needed developing and a lot of work to really bring it out, but it was clearly something I had some skill with. I could take reality apart to fragments and shreds and not care. So another power I think I have is the ability to deal with Dark Knight stuff pretty well. So like I could have like my inner thoughts screaming or my body dissolving or the feeling of like creepy energy just flooding through the space I was in and just ride with it. Like riding, you know, like you would do if you're riding a roller coaster or something. Uh, so that was also um, one of the things I think it was sort of given. Um, those are some of the gifts. I don't know, like, yeah. With whom were you engaged in magical combat in your dreams? And what was the outcome of those battles? Well, um, my dreams have gone and have a predictable pattern to them, as I think I've talked about somewhere else, but where usually it's like ordinary dream, 
and then suddenly I can fly or or jump long distances or sometimes like skate along the ground or like run super fast with these great leaping bounds that might take me like 30 feet astride or something, something like that, some sort of unusual transportation ability generally. Then if sensual stuff is or, um, you know, intimate stuff is going to happen, it'll usually happen somewhere around there. It's sort of A and P phase, magical phase. Um, and that's when things usually become more lucid. And then usually shortly thereafter, there's a deterioration in what's going on, morphing, changing to something sinister, combat-related, creepy, you know, being trapped or, um, uh, you know, people coming after me or entities or whatever, zombies, vampires, miscellaneous monsters, hooligans, whatever. And then uh, there's usually then magical combat if the thing goes on long enough. There's usually either fight or flight. So fight or flight. Uh, and usually fight, but occasionally flight. And then if it's flight, it's like, how fast can I scramble over things or fly or whatever? Then, you know, these people after me. But if it turns to combat, then it's usually mm, pretty standard stuff like, you know, black lightning bolts trailing off my fingers or, you know, projectiles flying at people or just hand-to-hand -hand combat or whatever. And then if I can get out past that phase, their usual will become something of a boss phase. So this is even before video games that I've been having this pattern since I was a kid, long before there were bosses in video games in the same kind of way. And usually some like head vampire or wizard or whatever. And usually if it goes on long enough, we will eventually come to a stalemate, a respectful stalemate where we recognize that we cannot um, we are neither of us strong enough to defeat the other. And then there's usually this whole thing where the dynamic flips to like respect, um, like almost like some alphas testing each other in some testosterone poisoned kind of way. And then, then if that, if I can get through that phase of the dream and the dream continues, that's when I get to some of the most amazing dream phases. And I can't always get all the way through this whole sequence. And that's when things like super open up to luminous, symbolic, like transcendent, like stuff about like uh, non-dual consciousness or wisdom transmission or, you know, powerful symbology or like, like um, you know, amazing spaces. Like uh, one of the ones I give an example of before, it's just one of the most memorable. Suddenly I was sort of descending into something that looked like something out of a Chinese painting with these super high, you know, very stylized kind of like cliffs and things with, you know, trees coming out the sides with just the most amazing, like coiffed bonsai look to them and golden symbols just drifting down through the air with profound magical import. And, you know, it was one of these that sort of best defined what that end of the dream phase can look like and then that phase is like super healing super integrative like that's the best those are the best dreams i've ever had in some ways some of them where they had that feel of of everything being right in some super magical connected very peaceful harmonious amazing way and so that's kind of yeah standard dream sequence stuff not that it always goes that far, because it doesn't always. Speaking of combat, have you ever run into any combat or uh, fights or conflicts in the magical space with other magical practitioners? 
Uh, yes, and explicitly so. So I've had people who said they, you know, sent curses against me, you know, did, you know, dark tantric rituals to try to gain power over me or gain advantage in some situation or to actively harm me or whatever. So yeah, so the problem is if you're in this space, it's just a matter of time before some other magical practitioners are going to do that kind of stuff. That just seems to be par for the course. I do my best to resolve conflicts in ordinary ways first, whenever possible, to try to understand their point of view, to listen to them, to, you know, and then I'm certainly uh, very comfortable throwing out wards, defenses, banishings, counter curses that are not designed to curse them, but designed to diffuse out their curse, to rechannel it to skillful stuff, to, um, to take the energy in and, and attempt to transmute it to benevolent wisdom, to transform poison into nectar, all that standard tantric transformation uh, stuff, you know, aggression into skillful energy and ignorance into wisdom and, you know, unskillful desire into, you know, fulfillment. And I'm very comfortable doing those kinds of magical acts. Very, very reluctant to strike back. Um, there have been the rarest of occasions where I've pulled out what I call my dark wand and said, okay, no, like, yeah, I, you know, um, for better or for worse, I will only be a doormat or a, a, a defensive magical practitioner for so long. It's very rarely come to that, but unfortunately that is the kind of stuff that if you're going to be in this space with people who have power and complex personalities in a world where conflict and misunderstandings and miscommunications and conflicting interests are inevitable, it's just a matter of time before you run into something like this. And so do your best in your daily life to have skillful human relationships and stay on the light side of the street. That's my best advice. Um, the arguments for yes, but, you know, when the fight is on and all other methods have not worked, it's only a fool who doesn't know how to defend themselves and push back. I can understand the logic behind that. And so, you know, I have um, magical implements and magic tech on board that I consider not only defensive, but defensively offensive, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then that realm looks like bindings and um yeah bind yeah wards and bindings and then you know um like uh karmic re-resonators where you take their magical energy and say hey this is your karma that kind of aggression own that and reap the consequences of that that's on you you mm -hmm. sent this you know and then always the the wishing that they will that they and me will better understand the law of karma and thus be able to more skillfully interact with each other for the benefit of all of us, right? Because all, the, all that kind of aggression is always coming in some ways from love, from wanting justice to be done or things to be well or people to be safe or okay, right? Somewhere fundamentally, it's trying to protect and defend to do something hopefully um, beneficial, even if the way it's manifesting is not. And to keep that in mind and play to that whenever possible is a key part of my magical defensive strategy. Mm. 
would it be interesting to say what sort of thing you did to upset magicians to the point where they tried to curse you? Or is that something you'd rather not go into? Yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah, I just... Hmm. This is... The space we're in is small, right? So the vaguest hint of what I'm talking about, there are people who will know what I'm talking about. It's very hard to figure out how to give details. That, I mean, some of the people listening to this probably already know, they know who they are, right? So like, but, but you know, um, you don't have to do a lot of research to, to see that being in the position I'm in and saying the things I do and you know you're you're gonna not everybody's gonna like that and not everybody's gonna get along or appreciate all of this stuff and yeah talking about things like insight or casino practice this 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 sort of thing would yeah, upset there's that and also like you know the fact of being in creative spaces right people co-creating things creating vision creating Okay. content create you know like uh how do i yeah i've already probably said too much anyway um just uh yeah uh, people are going to have different visions of how all that should go even if they were people you were trying to do something beneficial with and those differences of opinion sometimes can get pretty strong so let's let's move on Many systems of magic across various cultures, they use, use the language of symbols and archetypes and so on. I'm curious, what's your natural library of archetypes and symbols? Of course, one can go the, the, the Tibetan route, or one can go the Chinese route, or one could go, well, I mean, there are so many different kinds. So what's your natural language of symbols and archetypes? What, what, what is it that comes up naturally for you? Yeah, I have found it challenging to, even as much as I have often tried to adopt like the Tibetan magical iconography and symbology, you know, just through some having done some reasonable amount of some mantras or mudras or visualizations or whatever, you get some of it, but it's never for me had the archetypal resonance of some of the pop cultural references, right? The stuff I learned in my childhood is the stuff that hits me the most strongly. Harry Potter and, you know, Tolkien and et cetera, Ursula K. Le Guin, plenty of the rest of it, hit me with just way more emotive force because they got in early in those phases of my development when it's easier for that stuff to get in. And my sort of critical, rational, scientific adult mind wasn't as much in play. And so it was much more able to build in some of that emotional structural resonance before I was, you know, a critical adult. And so, yeah, I just have had to acknowledge that that kind of stuff is going to have more, more force and just roll with that because that's what works for me, which is what chaos magic allowed me much more to do. So I'm way more likely to put on my, you know, robes and pull out my crystals and my wands than I am to pick up my Dorje, for example. Not that I don't appreciate a good Dorje now and then. <laughs> That's a great sentence. Okay, I know we're coming up to the end of the time, so I'd love to squeeze in a couple more questions. You stated elsewhere that the vast majority of people, this is a direct quote, with power are magicians. You went on at that time to list the Masonic involvement 
in the founding of America. Yeah. You mentioned John Dee and who we've discussed already and, and others. I'm wondering if you could expand a bit on that. Specifically, were these men whose magic was directly involved in their work, in your opinion, or were they great men who just also happened to be in magic, in the sense that powerful people of today <laughs> tend to play golf? Also, who among the powerful of today do you see as possible candidates for being magicians in action? Wow. So the first thing is, I'm not going to out people I know, right? So who are not already out, right? So there are people I know who, you know, are players in various spaces with various impressive levels of resource or various impressive levels of connection or societal power who do this stuff. And I can't tell you any of their names. And I apologize. That's a terrible answer, but it's just like fair and respectful. And if they don't want to out themselves, I'm not going to do it because um, A, uh, I would really appreciate these people still being my friends. <laughs> and B, it's just the ethical thing to, to do. But the, the examples are countless, right? Going back to Newton and John Dee and most of the great mathematicians who got us the stuff, as well as a lot of philosophers and people who created much of Western culture and Eastern culture as well, were explicitly doing magical things, right? The list is so long that if, if it's a true, true and unrelated situation, like it's such, it's so remarkable that it's hard to dismiss. And the great organizations of power all have their rituals. I mean, and, you know, from the Bohemian Grove and its owl, right, which is well documented now, and we have videos of this stuff and undeniable to the Masons, the Rosicrucians, um, and, to, you know, plenty of other orders, you know, uh, you know, there are Catholic orders that also have explicit magical stuff built into them, for example. Uh, and this is just, and, and the, the great, it's interesting for most of human history, these things were not divorced, right? So for most of human history, explicitly what you were doing when you crowned a king was magical, period. Right, explicitly what everybody was doing when they went to church was magical. You called on God to defend your army, period. That wasn't looked at as just sort of a, a ritual that is kind of quaint and cute. That was the ritual of, you know, that they were doing. So for it's it's only in the last really, I mean, not even now. I mean, we still have rituals that are, you know, when we swear in presidents, you know, we do it on Bibles. That's Christian magic, period. There's some notion of sanctification. I mean, it's still baked into the power structures, um, the, you know, the symbolism of nations and their flags and why they have the colors and the stripes and the stars and the whatever that they do. And this, the great seals of nations, those specifically have magical stuff built into them. The, you know, the, the stars that sheriffs wear, you know, the, I mean, like th there's magical stuff built all through and ritual into our society, the colors that people wear for certain things, the, the words they use, the, I mean, it's, you know, the, the notion that these things would ever have been separate is the weirdest of modern delusions. Just straight up. You know, the endless pomp and circumstance of British royalty, for example, 
is a lot of magical tech and symbolism and stuff and myth and all of that. So, you know, anointed, anointed with special oils and with special swords and with special chalices and, and you know, um, yeah, it's just, you know, certain cloths and by certain clergy and it's, it's built in to the, the mechanisms of power, the symbolism of power. I mean, even banks that you have, you know, sort of are, you know, Greek architectural kind of magic, you know, because, the, you know, when they have their columns and things, I mean, these were looked at as magical by the Greeks, the, the proportions of certain buildings. They still build buildings this way with, you know, fee. Fee was considered magical, right? These magical numbers of, you know, that's just the way power is. That's the way the symbology of power is. That's the way the transmission of power is still today. Um, it, it's not like it's not even hidden, right? It's it's explicit. So, is it your opinion then that, say, groups like the royal family or um, the upper echelons of the banking industry and so on, deliberately uh, employ? these rituals and um, architecture and so on for their magical purpose in the same way that you know somebody a cabalist or a goisha practitioner might do might explicitly be doing something for an explicitly magic reason or do you think it's an act of unconscious magic a kind of echoing of previous forms which have symbolic uh, value somehow societally i don't think these are purely empty ritual i would be amazed if the people doing them even as they were doing them, felt it was purely empty ritual. Even before I really sort of had gotten to the level I am now of believing magic has a there there rather than the, oh, I read a book on magic and it's cool and I'm a kid kind of level. Even when I've been involved in ceremonies, like even in the Boy Scouts, you know, there was pomp and circumstance when I was given, you know, my eagle, you know, award as a kid. <laughs> right? I felt that sense of ritual power and meaning and significance. And I know other people there did too. Like the ritual of graduation is palpable and powerful. It is transformative somehow. It is an empowerment. It is a, a license to go forth and spread knowledge. It is an acknowledgement of something. Even these rituals that are built in tra tradition that seem to have all this pomp and circumstance from bygone eras, yet it is impossible not to feel the power of them while one is doing them. So even if the mind is trying to rationalize that that's not there, like I wonder how well it could actually do that and be honest with itself, right? And I think it's only in the modern era that we even have this sort of capacity to have a separate part of us that is not in it or believing it, even as we're experiencing it and our body and emotions and everything are reacting as if we are in it. I would be amazed if one could be, say, crowned a monarch in massive pomp and circumstance and not feel something heavy of the weight of that crown as it descends upon one's head and some mythic resonance with all of the people for centuries who had come before millennia down those lines, right? I mean, I'm not buying the that we can really be purely secular and skeptical argument in the face of those kinds of situations argument. I think it's highly unlikely to be true. Well, in your definition of magic, which includes things like the mutual social agreement, 
and, and things of that nature, social magic and so on, then presumably whether or not one thinks of things in terms of Harry Potter style, <laughs> the ability to actually create an impression and to create a mutual social agreement through some means, whether it's advertising or some ritual or some title or wearing some special hat or something, which seems to be a thing, mm -hmm. uh, that if it works to convince a lot of people of something, then by your definition, that certainly is a powerful magical act and one of the most powerful, actually. Private magic is yeah. easier than social magic. Let me ask you this, this question here. Uh, you said that concentration is so key and so underappreciated, underemphasized. And you've also said that the fire casino is a really powerful practice for developing the sort of concentration that one can use in magical situations. Another thing that magical traditions emphasize, and I wonder if you see this as different from concentration, is power and its accumulation. Whether it's chi packing or specific rituals, uh, even things like uh, retention of bodily fluids such as semen or exposure to certain um, phases of the moon or s seasonal or astrological uh, situations such as you know bathing in the moonlight and so on. What's your take on the accumulation of power? Do you see it as different from concentration? And specifically, do you have a take on semen retention as it pertains to this? Yeah, so I definitely think that people can cultivate power. I've seen it in myself in my own practice that there are rituals and circumstances and situations and diets and exercises that can give one much more of a sense of power and the connection to power and help with the direction of that power. No question. Semen retention is super complicated. I mean, the straightforward arguments are, one, you're redirecting that energy to other purposes, right? So as anybody who's been male and not retained semen has noticed there's that sense of languor or tiredness or fatigue or relaxation or something that can come after that, sometimes depending on circumstances, etc. And so you know, it might be easier to sleep, which may mean one has less power, or from another point of view, one might be more relaxed. Then there are counter arguments like that is the state, you know, that from a magical point of view, plenty of Western uh, practitioners are going to say, no, that's getting into my highest state of, you know, magical ecstasy. And that's where I would cast, that is where the power is and comes from. Right. So you see these totally diametrical arguments, both of which I can see as having some validity. How in the world this relates to more female expressions of that same act is highly debated. Um, does the same sort of energetic depletion versus exaltation apply? And if so, how? What are the parallels and differences? Um, I don't know. I'd be speaking purely from secondhand experience, as it were, so I don't know. And then the Taoists obviously have a super long tradition of thinking this is super important. And then the tantric people have a mixed attitude to this, right, where they sort of, yes, retention and maybe multiple non-semen-releasing um, orgasms, you know, might be value versus releasing it itself might be magical and help the seed and the whatever, you know, the red drop and the white drop connect in whatever way they're supposed to. So it's just not a straightforward question. And I think 
very much of it is something of like counterbalancing energies. Like clearly is it true that sexual release can help ground people down when they're way too jacked up and just help bring some normalization and some energy? Is it like one of the standard go-tos if you're thinking your energy is getting super buzzy out of balance that might help level things out? Yeah, I can definitely see that as true. Like in a social context with someone else, obviously that kind of, you know, for bonding or social connection or love magic or whatever is obviously incredibly connecting. This is a trivial thing to say, but obviously from a magical point of view, still worth saying in this context. And then like, is it also true that there might be tremendous sort of redirection that can come if one is holding up that power and building it up and forcing the creative juices, as it were, to go out other channels. Yeah, plenty of people have also report that that can be very valid. So I think this has to be taken on a case-by-case, person-by-person, situation-by-situation, magical act-by-magical act basis. I don't think there's anything like a one-size-fits-all either across times or even you know, so I think it's the kind of thing you have to think, okay, for myself, you know, how does this affect me? How do I think it will impact this ritual or the specific magical working or situation? And then go from there, right? So I think it, and usually it doesn't take much experimentation to figure out um, how you and your magic is going to respond to those sorts of situations. That's wonderful. Thank you, Daniel. And, and uh, somewhat pun not intended, I think we'll have to bring it to an end. It's been a wonderful time. I have so many more questions for you on, on this topic. I think we perhaps will do a, a sequel to this uh, magical episode in the future. But I just want to say thank you for your time. Daniel Ingram, thank you very much. Cool. And everybody, just keep your wits about you when it comes to this stuff, right? So, so that's And keep your ethics about you. That's my strong recommendation. Um, yeah, and it's been delightful. Thank you. This has been a really fun conversation. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.